0: America's founding fathers believed their vision, the city upon a hill, could only succeed with a special people in a special place. Over 240 years later, we the people, our American story is still unfolding. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. You will be uplifted, inspired, proud, and humbled to call yourself an American. American history is more than history. It's personal. What we do for ourselves dies with us. What we do for others and the world is and remains immortal. Albert Pine. Episode 28, Eddie's American Story. Welcome to today's episode. My guest is Eddie Quimby. Do you like to go by Eddie or Ed? Uh,
1: Eddie's fine, yes. Okay,
0: Eddie, welcome. Can you... Start off by telling us where your story begins, maybe a little bit about growing up, your family. Do you have any military history in your family?
1: Absolutely. So my my story starts, I guess, when I was approximately 16 years old. My father and my mother both were soldiers in the United States Army. My dad did about 34 years and my mom did 20. I have a, a history of military in my family. Both my grandparents also served as well. My great-grandfather served in World War I. My grandfather on my mom's side served in World War II. My grandfather on my father's side served in the Korean War. I think the only conflict or war that we have not served in uh, was Vietnam. My dad joined the army shortly after or during Vietnam. So he, he, he did not go to Vietnam. And then myself, I've been to Afghanistan twice and Iraq once. When I was 16 years old, my father told me, hey, when you turn 17, you're going to join the Army. And I told him, you know, I don't think so. You can kick rocks. I'm not joining the Army. I don't have any desire at this point to join the Army. But what I didn't realize is, is after I did some research and after I thought about it a little bit, uh, it made sense for what I wanted to do in life. And the only thing I've ever wanted to be was a police officer. That's, that's the number one thing that I've ever wanted to do growing up. So I thought about it, and I decided, hey, you know, the Army is a a great organization to help me pay for my my school, get my degree, and then go into federal law enforcement. But uh, what I didn't realize is uh, once I did join the Army, I would love the Army so much that I just want to do all sorts of different things and volunteer for all sorts of different opportunities that were provided to me. So when I was 17, I joined the Army as a junior in high school. And there's a program called the split opportunity or split option program, where I go to basic training in between my junior and senior year of high school.
0: Before you even graduate.
1: Before I even graduate, I went to basic training the summer of 2005. And while my friends were off doing, you know, whatever we do as high school kids uh, during the summer, I was at basic training and I was approximately 17 years and two weeks old. Uh, I joined the Army on May 19th, 2005, which was two days after my 17th birthday. And then I was in basic training June 2nd of 2005. So like two weeks later, I was in basic training, probably the youngest person in my basic training class, completed my 10 weeks of basic training. And then I came back and jumped right back into senior year of high school and then I went to, I joined the reserve component. So I did my part time commitment all throughout senior year of high school, one week in a month while I focused on obviously my studies and, and extracurricular activities like uh, sports. Played sports in high school, played basketball, ran track, and, and played baseball as well. So it was, a, it was a busy schedule, but it was well worth it when I graduated high school. I went to uh, my advanced individual training as a military police officer, because that's the, the job or military occupational specialty that I chose to do, and uh, went to the training in Fort Lunarwood, Missouri, the following fall, so I think August of 2006, I went to training, and I graduated, I believe, October of 2006, and then shortly after that, I volunteered for my first deployment. And I was in Camp Atterbury, Indiana, training to go to Afghanistan in January of 2007, and then went to Afghanistan on February 7th of 2008, or 2007, I'm sorry.
0: Can we stop here for a second?
1: Absolutely. <laughs> because
0: You are so young. First of all, I had no idea that that option was even available to go to basic training while you're still in high school. Had you been away from home before?
1: I spent the summers with my grandparents growing up. So I was used to being away from my my parents, uh, not so much, you know, family, family, throughout the summer. So I'd say, yeah, I've been away from family or my parents, direct family, growing up in the summers and my grandparents, but not so much away from everyone.
0: You were a kid. And not only the physical stress, the mental stress, was that shocking? Was it difficult? Were you able to handle that easily because, or not easily, but able to handle it in a good way? Because most adults, (laughs) I know I couldn't handle that.
1: There were some nights where obviously I was, I was uh, in my own feelings, right? And I probably cried a few times during basic training because I missed home, uh, as did a lot of other individuals, regardless of the age. You know, we didn't have cell phones uh, like we do now. So it wasn't like I could just jump on the, the phone or shoot a text. We had pay phones and we all had calling cards. And my parents would send me calling cards in the mail. So that way, when we did get the opportunity to make phone calls home, we had to use the calling card, we had to use the phone banks, the phone booths. And if someone didn't answer, it was a little bit more stressful, because I didn't know if they were going to answer the home phone or, or, and if they didn't, then it was just kind of like, hey, well, I tried, I guess I'll have to wait to try again. uh, The next time.
0: Were there times that you second guessed or triple guessed your decision about doing this?
1: Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, that's extremely common that basic training is uh, you get on that bus, and, then, and when you're on the bus, you're going to basic training, and that drill sergeant comes on the bus and says, You know, welcome to Fort Leonard Wood, number one in training. It's like, Well, what did I just do? A lot of those thoughts were coming across my mind throughout basic training.
0: Okay, your first appointment again, tell me where that is.
1: Yeah, my first appointment was in 2007 to 2008, and I went to Afghanistan.
0: Okay, and how old are you? at that time?
1: Oh, at that time I was
0: 18. What kind of a shock is that to go someplace? I mean, so many things I think would make you be like, just, you know, your head's going everywhere, trying to grasp it all. Was it shocking to go to such a different place
1: you know, yeah it, it was and and you know even the trip the trip over to Afghanistan was even eventful uh, our plane broke down wasn't break down I guess it had mechanical issues in Germany we landed in Germany and they told us hey you know take a couple things out of your carry-on bag we'll be back on the plane in a, in a few hours well a few hours turned into seven days and after a few hours they put us on a bus and then they bused us across Germany to a little Air Force installation in Bitburg and we stayed there for I don't know seven days and all we had was basically the clothes on our backs. so a lot of us were washing our clothes in the sink you know or in the tub every day it was like hey we're gonna we're gonna leave tonight and that went on for for seven days so it was like I don't know when we're gonna leave so that was kind of stressful And again, didn't have a cell phone, didn't have really any way to communicate with my family uh, back in the States. And then once we did finally leave, then we went to another installation in Kyrgyzstan. And that was another experience, you know, another country to say that you've been to. And then finally we made it uh, into Afghanistan. Uh, And then when when we did land in Afghanistan, there was a lot of different thoughts running through my mind because it was different. Uh, I was away from family. I didn't have the means of communication that we do today. So very, very stressful, very eventful, but also very, very rewarding. Because in the Army, you make a lot of lifelong friends. Even if it's just the, the friends that you have in basic training, those individuals, you can contact them. Like I could send a Facebook message to some, some of the guys that I went to basic training with and we could pick up right where we left off. And that's the unique thing about the army or the military in general is you, you can pick up with people that you've gone to a school or training with and you just pick right up where you left off and, and continue that friendship.
0: You know, you're not the first person that I have had as a guest that has told me that. That there is a certain brotherhood or family that you don't understand unless you are in the military. That it might be somebody you have not seen for years, but they would pick up anything and do whatever to help you out.
1: Right, and that's one thing that a lot of veterans might miss when they do get out of the service is is that camaraderie, is that brotherhood, and that's why there's a lot of great veterans organizations that I'm involved with and will continue to be involved with when I do get out of the army.
0: What was most surprising to you when you got to Afghanistan as an 18 year old kid?
1: I guess the freedom of being an adult and not being uh, restricted to, I don't know how to explain it, but I guess ultimately the freedom. Uh, I'm, I'm by myself, I'm 18 year old adult, right? In, in a foreign country, I'm living, living my life and, and making my own decisions. Uh, and learning from those decisions that are being made in Afghanistan. Was it a scary place to be? If you say you weren't scared when you first got into uh, a foreign country like Afghanistan or Iraq or, or any of those those countries, then I would have to call someone's bluff on that. Uh, yeah, of course, of course I was scared, but uh, as time goes on, during your deployment, that fear, kind of subsides. It kind of goes away. It's still there. But I guess you become numb to
0: it. And it's something that you know you you have to live with. It's part yeah. of the job, right? Right.
1: But uh, some, some of the best times in the Army that I've had have come out of my deployments. And then that just goes back to that camaraderie, that brotherhood that we already spoke about with the individuals that you serve with. That the, the individuals that you serve with during your deployments make the deployment, make those memories, make those times that you'll never forget.
0: You were in Afghanistan for how long?
1: Uh, one year. So Mm -hmm. 12 months, I served 12 months in Afghanistan. And you said
0: you served, did you say three deployments?
1: Uh, Yes, yes, so.
0: So Came home and then what?
1: So when I came home, there were a couple opportunities that uh, I didn't feel like I did my duty, I guess you could say. And I wanted to go uh, deploy again. So I volunteered for a couple opportunities that were available, one of which was uh, personal security. So I was able to go to a school in the Army uh, that has to deal with personal security. So think of like the Secret Service and protecting dignitaries. That's uh, the school that I went to to try to get onto that deployment to, to protect one of the high-ranking dignitaries overseas. I wasn't able to get onto that mobilization or deployment. And the next opportunity that presented itself, which is my favorite opportunity that I have gotten to do, was being a, a combat tracking dog handler. Oh, wow. So in the reserve component, there's no dog handlers. Just due to, to the logistical nature of, of that job, you have to constantly train with your animal and keep them proficient in their... Capabilities, but uh, I put into I put together an application to do that, and I was selected. Uh, I was the first reserve combat tracking dog handler to graduate that program in two thousand eight. So two thousand eight, we went to nine week course. Six weeks were in Indiana at a civilian dog kennel called Von Vonlick Kennels. Uh, I believe they, they also had a, their own TV show on Discovery called Alpha Dogs at one point in time. But that's where I did my training at for six weeks as a Lick. And then we spent three weeks in Yuma Proving Grounds in, in Arizona to get our dogs climatized to the weather because we were going to Iraq. We were taking our dogs that we trained with to Iraq. And so in 2008, the end of 2008, uh, I took my dog. Her name was Cheetah. Uh, we went to Iraq from 2008 to 2009. The dog that I had was a Belgian Malinois. So it's, it's one of your common law enforcement type dogs. You have your shepherds, like everyone uh, knows what a German shepherd is. And that's probably the, the number one police dog that everyone knows. But there's uh, Belgian Malinois, which or mouths. You
0: know what that is.
1: If you saw it you would you would know okay so just the, the really distinct fe- features for mouths are their reddish orange coat and then their black faces so they have black faces and then their coats are like a reddish orange but our whole job was to track individuals planting explosive devices or track individuals that might have fled from uh, some type of scene or area that uh, was of interest uh, for the Army. So that's what my dog was trained in, is tracking people, and that's what we did.
0: Do you go off scent like something that whoever you're after left behind?
1: Yes, so we usually place the, the dog at, at a location where that individual sat for a while, was frequently visiting, and we kind of go off of that.
0: And when you go in, if you're in hot pursuit, I don't know what you call it, are you and the dog, the first ones in then?
1: So to an extent, yes. For example, we had uh, one point in time, I went out with the infantry unit that was out there. They they requested the dog to go with them. And it just so happened to be that a guy had supposedly fled from this building that we were going to. Now, the proper way of doing things would obviously those guys would go in first and that's what they did they'd go in first to make sure that area was safe for for me and my dog to go into now they didn't do the the greatest of job i would say because the the guy was hiding under a bed in that building
0: the only reference i have is have you ever seen the show uh tv show seal
1: team uh i know what you're talking about but I, i haven't
0: and they always just, the, the guy goes in and then he releases the dog and the dog goes in first and attacks and clenches on and then everybody else comes in. Is it like that?
1: No, okay. uh, <laughs> no, we didn't do that. My dog had like a 16 foot leash that I would keep her attached to if I needed to release my dog on someone. That's a different procedure. Okay, um,
0: Did you ever have to do that?
1: Fortunately enough, my dog never had to bite anyone. We did a lot of training with the bite suits. So all of the big old suits that you guys mm-hmm. see people put on, we did a lot of that training. And a lot of a lot of people came over to our compound and wanted to put the bite suit on to see what that was like.
0: I'm sure you developed a close relationship with Cheetah. Is that what you said? Yeah,
1: we did. And it was unfortunate that the Army asked me to turn her back in. She's property of the United States government. So when we, we came back from Afghanistan in 2000. Um, nine, I had to unfortunately give her back to the army for another dog handler to utilize.
0: When the dog is ready to retire, does the person who is the handler at that point get first dibs?
1: Sometimes. I never received a phone call when they went to retire Cheetah. Oh. So I don't know what, what happened to her. I tried tracking her down a couple of times, but I, I just don't know what happened to her. It's been said that yes like the first handler would, would get a phone call to potentially be able to adopt her. But I don't know how true that
0: is. Okay. Was it hard to say goodbye? Yes, it was. Hmm. It was,
1: it was very difficult because I mean, we spent, you know, nine weeks training together and then we spent nine months together in Iraq every single day. um, My dog lived with me. Uh, We weren't on a large installation to where they had kennels, like other installations in Iraq, where they actually had a a hard facility for multiple dogs it was just me and her in our room our area that we we were you know given uh and i was with an air force handler a marine handler and then for a little bit another army handler so there was really only four three or four of us at a time in our own little dog compound that we kind of made
0: are they with you then 24 hours a day pretty much the dog yes
1: Yes, she, she, she did. I, she didn't really leave my side other than if I had to go do something for like an hour, she would stay back in her crate uh, in my room. Uh, we had air conditioning, so it was fine.
0: You said she. Are dogs both male and female, or do they typically go female?
1: No, either or. Okay. Either or. We had uh, The Air Force handler had a male had a male. Actually, I think my dog was the only female out of the oh, four.
0: Okay, That's your second deployment. What's your third deployment?
1: My third deployment was as a military police officer in 2011 to 2012 and we went back to Afghanistan. We did a lot of law and order operations, so we did a lot of uh, enforcing the laws on installations within Afghanistan. So people are going to be people. People are going to break the laws. Uh, unfortunately, that's just human nature. And so in the Army, you have to have military police officers, just like any other branch of the military. You have your police officers, and that's what we did this last deployment is we enforced the law on the Army installations while in a combat zone.
0: Out of the three deployments, did you have, ever have a very scary experience that really shook you to your core?
1: I could say not not so much not oh, so much blessed yeah now. okay right yeah, absolutely yeah I would say yeah I, I, I was blessed to have three experiences to where it wasn't that extreme
0: no IEDs that were close to you no we, we took
1: indirect fire countless times but that's not something that to, to me personally it didn't really affect me
0: not even the first time
1: well, the first time is always scary. Okay. <laughs> um, you, go your, you go to your designated
0: bunker that you're, you're assigned
1: to take cover. But after after a while, just going back to what we talked about earlier, you just kind of get numb to those experiences. And and sometimes, quite frankly, sometimes I slept through, through
0: those. How bizarre is that? That just becomes par for the course, right? Right. Oh, that's so weird. Now, I know you have a family. You're so busy. How did you work in getting married and having children.
1: My family came after my third deployment. So within the first, well, I joined in 2005 and my last deployment was 2011 to 12. So within the first seven years of my career, I was deployed three times. The last one was a little bit difficult just because my wife and I were dating. I proposed to her on Christmas, kind of through a Skype call. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to, to be there, but we were able to, to Skype, so that was, that was cool. Uh, and then we got married shortly after I came back. My last uh, deployment was probably my hardest when it came to, to family and, and family commitments, but we didn't start a family until after that deployment.
0: Okay, and how many children do you have?
1: Uh, I have four little boys. Oh
0: my goodness, so you went boom, boom, boom. Yes, yes,
1: <laughs> yes, we did. My wife still wants uh, a girl. She still wants.
0: She's still rooting for that. How old is your oldest? He's seven. Oh my goodness, your wife is really busy, isn't she? Right. It's really busy. How did you fall into your career as a recruiter? When did that happen?
1: Man, there's just so much stuff going on in my my career up until this point. Uh, I volunteered, so I worked because I was in the reserve component. So I had to have a full-time job. And so my full-time job, I worked for the army as a a federal employee, as a civilian. Uh, I worked for the army reserve. And then I volunteered to become a recruiter, uh, come onto what's called the active guard reserve program. So still, I'm still technically a reservist, but I'm on active duty as a recruiter. And I have been since 2014. Um, That's when I came on to recruiting and I'm what's considered a permanent recruiter right now. So this is, this is my career until I retire is the recruiting command. There's all sorts of different things that I can do uh, within the recruiting command. But right now my position is the station commander for the Ogden army recruiting station. So I have approximately five recruiters right now that I'm in charge of. What do you enjoy about recruiting? talking to people so networking and and being actively involved in the community that's what I really enjoy about recruiting is is the face-to-face and everyday interactions with new people you, you never know who you're gonna be able to, to speak with or you're never gonna know who you're gonna meet and that's what I really like uh, about recruiting is I've met a lot of people over the last six years of six yeah six and a half years of of recruiting and made a lot of friends, uh, lasting friendships even with the young men and women that I've actually enlisted into the United States Army's families. so even even the kids that, that I've put in the army I stay in touch with I'd say about 90 to 95 percent of every individual that I've actually helped to get enlisted into the Army and then their families as well and and keeping those relationships is very important. And very rewarding at the same time to see, you know, that individual's career in the army explode.
0: Do you feel any responsibility for the young people that you enroll in the the military? It's a dangerous job.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And everyone understands that signing uh, or, you know, enlisting into any branch of the military, you're you're taking on some risks. Uh, And everyone understands that when they sign the dotted line, The responsibility I take is, I'd say, their success. I I really would like them all to be successful, and I'm very, very adamant when I talk to them initially about, you ultimately manage your career in the Army. You can be extremely successful, or you can be a dirtbag. I tell them that verbatim. (laughs) But um, I I do tell them that. Your success is really going to be based off of your proactiveness and your willingness to to want to succeed. And I think I'd say about 90, again, 90 to 95% of all of those that I've enlisted are relatively successful. And I see it on social media, you know, social media is a huge platform to where we can all see, engage how successful someone is or isn't based off of what they post.
0: Do most people that you recruit, do they come into your office or are you doing it offsite?
1: I would love for a lot of people to come into this office. It would make my job extremely easier. But uh, no, unfortunately not. We, we do a lot of recruiting outside of this office. There's a lot of different methods that we try to use and, and try to get more involved with. And being more involved in the community obviously makes my job a lot easier because the misconception that a lot of people have or, or is – that you know a lot of soldiers might be like robotic and we're just all robots and we just do what we're told and and that's further from the truth I mean we all have lives like you said I have a wife I have four boys I have hobbies I like to do things outside of this uniform I do take this uniform off every day and wear regular clothes which you know we ran into a lot of people that didn't know that they just think that this is all we wear and this is what we do, which is not, you know, it's not the truth. We are people.
0: When people come up to you, do they usually walk right up or are they kind of a little skittish? Um, not sure what to say. Well,
1: some, some, you, you have the ones that are going, it goes back to that introvert extrovert mentality. And that's what we all are either. You know, you could be an introvert or you could be an extrovert. And you have kids that will come up and talk to us freely and ask the questions. And then you have the ones that are kind of shy. um, So it goes, it goes both ways.
0: Is there anything that you want the general public to know about the military that maybe they don't understand or that you wish they understood better?
1: I think the number one thing is, is a lot of things that I've experienced personally, and, and again, all, you know, everything that I'm saying is not, not officially backed by the army.
0: Uh, this is just,
1: you know, my job. So these are all my personal opinions. Of course.
0: Lamer, this is all from Eddie Quimby. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. Eddie, Eddie Quimby's personal appearances and and opinions. But I think the, the number one thing that, that the public should realize or or maybe think of the, the military as is not a second uh, option or a plan B. I think some people should maybe focus on the, the military, the army uh, as a plan A option. Not a lot of people are qualified to join the military. 29% of people are qualified to, to join the army. That's it. And less than 1% actually serve in the military. So people don't know those statistics, but there's a lot of different, qualifications that have to be met to serve. and I don't think a lot of people realize that and in the past it's been go to war, go to jail back in you know the Vietnam era where we're all volunteer army. there's no draft. the army is all volunteer based. there's no go to war, go to jail anymore. and you know if you have a criminal record you, you might want to talk to a recruiter to see if you're even eligible to join the army. Uh, same thing with medical conditions. There's, there's a lot of different medical conditions that might disqualify someone from serving. But that is something that people don't realize. And then the pros of, of service is there's countless educated soldiers out there. You have soldiers that have masters and PhDs. And I think the general public looks down on the Army and thinks of it as, a like I said, a plan B. To where, hey, you know, I want to go to college. I don't, you know, need to go to the army because all I want to do is go to college. Whereas in the army, we promote college. We we promote civilian education. At a certain point in time in your career, you're going to have to have a degree to get promoted. So those are things that the public might not be aware of. And then everyone, a lot of people understand that you'll go to school for free in the in the military. The military will pay for your your education. So there's really no reason for you not to get an education while you're serving. That just goes to being proactive. You know, I can't force someone to go to college. I can advise my soldiers to to go to college and get their degrees, but I can't make them do it. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, when did you get your degree and what's it in?
1: So I am in the process of completing my criminal justice degree. I have a few more classes to, to get my bachelor's degree. I'm going to post university right now, and I, I hope to have my bachelor's degree within the next year, year and a half. Uh, I mean, this just goes back to life happens. Uh, yeah. I get started back up in school, and then you know, something happens to where I might have to put a couple classes on hold, but it, I, will, I will definitely be finishing my degree. So one of my goals that I need to achieve.
0: You are involved in some extracurricular activities Uh, concerning the military. Can you share those with us?
1: Yes, I am. I am very, very actively involved in the veteran community uh, because it's it's very, very near and dear to my heart when it comes to taking care of our veterans and and giving back to those who, who have served and who have served before us and who are currently serving one of the organizations that I'm involved in is the Combat Veterans Motorcycle Association. And basically, I, I really like to ride motorcycles, and so does everyone else in the in the organization. Uh, it's not a motorcycle club. It's an association. And our mission statement is really vets helping vets. So we, we get actively involved in the community, helping veterans that may not be able to pay their you know, electric bill or their water bill, or they may need a wheelchair ramp at their house built for them or re-roof the roof or anything that we can do to help that veteran out. Um, that's what we do. And then obviously our hobby is riding motorcycles. So we, we do do a lot of motorcycle rides uh, for charity as well to, to raise money for veterans that are in need. Uh, another one more recent that uh, that I've gotten involved in and is what's called Hero Sports. And Hero Sports was started down in, in Texas uh, by Mike Barker or Mike Baker, I'm sorry. And uh, the mission statement for that is, is really getting veterans uh, involved in sports or through sports and getting them actively involved in the community and getting them out and, and more active uh, through sports. So we just started a, a team up here at, in Northern Utah in the Weber slash Davis County area. Uh, a softball team that's the first team that we we have started up here and uh, it's taken off quite I guess well it's it's taken off well we're excited to to be more involved up here in northern Utah there is a team down in Salt Lake City play they're going to be playing in Murray this year but I played on that team last year and I was invited to that team by my first team leader in the army I saw on her Facebook that she was playing and was involved in hero sports organization. And I reached out to her and she invited me out to play. So I played with that team last year. And then I decided, hey, you know, I'd really like to get more involved and start on my own team or our own team up here in Northern Utah for veterans in this community. We're just gonna kind of branch off from the softball team. And we're looking at maybe playing some flag football and, and maybe disc golf, bowling. Any sport you could think of, we're, we're gonna maybe try to put a, together a hero sports team to get these veterans actively involved.
0: And what is the? I don't know if I'm gonna pronounce it right. The batan Memorial Death March. Am I pronouncing oh, that correctly? Yes,
1: you are. Okay. So the the Baton the Baton Death March is historical to World War II. So I think back in 19. Uh, don't quote me on this, but the 40s, right during World War II. I'm just gonna say that. Approximately forty to sixty thousand individuals were forced when they uh, surrendered. They were forced to walk approximately sixty-two miles to some internment uh, facilities, and so they call it the death march because along the way, uh, obviously, you're going to get fatigued, and those that got fatigued or could no longer move were shot or you know stabbed or whatever. They were killed and they were just left on the side of the road. Um, while the other ones march to their work camps, their internment facilities. And so the Bataan Memorial Deaf March is something that we're doing to honor those that perished during that time. And we're going to actually be doing that on the 16th of April. I have myself and a few of the recruiters in my office and in the Clearfield Army Recruiting Office, and then a couple cadets out of Weber State University's ROTC program we are going to be doing the 26.2 march, 26.2 miles. And we're each gonna be carrying about 35 pounds on our back to honor those that were part of that baton death march. And then in, in so doing, we're also raising money for hero sports to give back to that organization for veterans to be able to get more involved uh, in their local communities to play sports and get out of the, the house. and and really get that camaraderie and brotherhood we talked about earlier back. Because you know a lot of veterans might not be actively involved in these type of communities, and it could help them for you know, their mental health side.
0: What is that website for the Heroes Sports?
1: You can look up Heroes Sports up on Facebook. You can also look up uh, Heroes Sports Utah, which is the Utah chapter. When it comes to North and South, we don't really have like a, our own Facebook page. We just use the Hero Sports Utah okay. Facebook page to, to post on there. If you would like to donate, then you can use the actual just Hero Sports Facebook page. And there will be a link on there for you to, to donate if you would like to. And I believe there's also a link on the Hero Sports Utah Facebook page as well.
0: I want to read something to you that you had on your Facebook page. And you'll have okay. to tell me, I don't know if you wrote it or if you took it from someone. What we do for ourselves dies with us. What we do for others and the world remains and is immortal. No,
1: that's not my own saying. No, no, I
0: took that. That's a quote. Oh man, now you put me on the spot. Yeah, what does that quote mean to you? Why, it was important enough for you to put it on your page. How important? What does it mean to you?
1: Service is, is something that I'm big into. I think service, selfless service is one of the Army's values and selfless service is something that I think uh, that we need to live more by. And that quote to me is just really, really encompasses the, the selfless service aspect of the, the military, even the Army, any branch of the military and serving those that have served before you, those that are serving alongside of you. What you do is, is definitely gonna be remembered Other than being selfish, no one is going to remember you for, for, um, maybe they will, for being selfish, but I would like to be remembered for what I've done for others and not for myself.
0: Do your children, as young as they are, do any of them have an understanding what dad does, that he serves our country? Are they too young to understand that?
1: No, I think my oldest knows that dad's a soldier, but... I don't think they have grasped that concept yet.
0: What do you want to teach your kids about America?
1: Service. I mean, just everything Everything really goes back to service. Serving the country, serving individuals. I mean, you, you don't have to join the, the military to serve. Uh, we have people serving in everyday careers. You know, you have your law enforcement officers, you have your firefighters, you have your medical personnel, you have your lawyers, you have a lot of different individuals that serve the community and give back so that's the biggest thing to me is, is giving back and the service peace in general
0: what does america mean to you
1: that's a good question there's a lot of different things that uh, that america means to me the biggest one is just freedom it's kind of cliche but yeah if freedom freedom means the the most to me freedom for me to be able to go outside and do you know, whatever. I'm not limited to, Hey, you, you only can do X, Y, and Z. I have the the freedom to, Hey, this is what I want to do. I want to give back to this community. I want to give back to this organization. I can do that. There's other countries that that you, you can't do that. You know, everything's dictated and, and managed in a way to where you're not able to do that.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. Eddie's story of service before self is inspiring and should give all of us a moment to reflect on how we can serve more. You can find Eddie on Facebook at Eddie Quimby and to learn more about the organizations he supports, visit combatvet.us and herosports.org. Imagine finding out you are dead, or at least the Veterans Administration has declared you as such. That is the exact situation my next guest, Carmelo Rodriguez, found himself in. A veteran, an author of multiple books, and a motivational speaker, Carmelo had to prove that he was, in fact, alive. As a final note, remember to subscribe, leave a review, and give a rating to this podcast. Let's work together on sharing these spectacular American stories. And until next Friday, see you then.